Have you ever wondered where you can find really good scissors? Handcrafted products for life? The world's most beautiful scissors are now available at cicelier.com. That's C-I-S-E-L-I-E-R. French for scissor maker. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the October issue, my friend and colleague, senior editor Joe Clock, writes about a group of pulp collectors in the tri-state area. He discovered this subculture after happening upon a YouTube account made by the collectors Gary Lovizi and his wife Lucille Colley. Their love for each other and for hunting down rare objects is as pure as their South Brooklyn charm. I spoke with Joe about his time with Gary and Lucille, the narratives of these wild yarns, the new and potentially destructive trend by which pulps are collected and valued, Sherlock Holmes, conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories about Sherlock Holmes, and more. Uh, it's a story about time, about books, about collecting and cats, which are a couple of things very dear to my heart. But if you tell anybody that you're into these things, obviously they're going to like that's all you're going to get for any holiday birthday. It's just like cat socks, book that you didn't ask for. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, you know, your story is focused on Gary Lovisi. He's a really interesting guy and his personality just comes through your piece so beautifully. Um, and you initially encountered Gary on YouTube, uh, but he previously edited and self-published Paperback Parade, which was a quarterly-ish journal about pulps. Have you seen an issue of this? And what was it like? Yeah, I he gave me a few issues. Um, I mean, it was very nice looking. Uh, it was a little hard to assess what was in it just because that's not really my world. So I, I'm not that familiar with, uh, or familiar at all really with any of the books he was talking about in there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really nice. You wouldn't be you know, surprised if you saw it in a store, I don't think. Oh, no, no. I mean, like, um, what was, like, the feeling of it? Like, did you read them? And, like, you know, was was his personality as evident in those in those issues as it is, like, on YouTube? Um, I think they're pretty... Because a lot of people contribute to them and have mm. over the years. And I, I think that they're pretty uh, representative of just sort of the broader collector world that I would later encounter after seeing them. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody has, it seems, I, I'm no expert on collectors, but it seems like everybody has their own uh, passions inside that world. So you've got, you know, people who are obsessed with like um, superhero comic book, like paraphernalia from, you know, the early 20th century. And then you have people who um, are just really into kind of like the mystery, like, you know, that adds, it gets into that in the article. But uh, yeah, I so um, I don't think any one person in that world would uh, necessarily, you know, be able to really dig deep into all the different little facets of it, but they certainly have a community around collecting together. Absolutely. That's, it's quite, um, it's interesting because, you know, to be a collector is to be eccentric in some fashion. Um, but there's also this connection sort of throughout your piece. There's this connection between pulps and 
Discordianism, the Lema, uh, and Ganas, which is possibly a sex cult. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm raising I'm raising my voice so they don't sue us. Um, <laughs> but where does that fit into your larger understanding of like pulp collectors? And 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 what did you hear about the book bombs that didn't make it into the piece? Well, in terms of pulp collectors, I I think what initially made me want to reach out to Gary was I think I think it's fair to say it's relative it's relatively unique compared to say collecting like um I don't know coins or stamps or something where you know these things accrue value and like you a lot of times you have to be wealthy to do it what what appealed to me about Gary and then as I learned more about pulp collecting in general was that, um, you know, this is really for the love of the game. You know, there's a lot of these books are, you buy them for a dollar and you're probably going to sell them for a dollar later on if you're going to sell them at all. Um, and so I was just intrigued by the idea that people would be just so passionate about these objects when it didn't have that same monetary incentive that you often see. And I think that in some ways that maybe speaks to, um, you know, your question about the relationship between them and these kind of like stranger groups is that, um, you know, like if you're, uh, if you're in one of these kind of, I don't want to call them cults, but I mean, maybe some people would. But, it, you know, if they're terrible these, people. They're, <laughs> they're, you know, they're devoted uh, and they're not doing that for money. They're not doing that. You know, it, it's just a passion that they have and it's itself a lifestyle. And I think that that's true with the pulp thing, too. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we're we're the same age. We're literally the same age. Uh, and, you know, we've lived through pretty serious changes in American culture. Um, and this is this is not a political statement. It's just fact. <laughs> this is not me <laughs> making fun of the internet. This is not anything else. But like, one of the biggest changes, and it doesn't really kind of get discussed, is how Americans' relationship to stuff and collecting has changed. Because like, in the '90s and the aughts, there was this idea that there were certain oddball objects that had previously been considered worthless, like McDonald's glass cups with like their characters on it, let's say, that were rare and therefore incredibly valuable. And then eBay kind of grew to this huge, incre you know, incredibly valuable company kind of off the backs of these people who were looking to collect or invest or to hoard. Um, and obviously this impulse goes back even further to things like commemorative plates and Hubble figurines, which are, you know, a mainstay of any uh, middle class to lower middle class to poor households in the Middle West. Um, but where do you think we are as a culture in relationship to collecting? Because now minimalism has kind of taken hold. Well, um, I did speak to some of the people in the story um, about stuff like that at various points so I can offer what they said. I think um, when you look at uh, John, who I, uh, the collector I go down to meet in Maryland, he's been for decades um, selling books and he just doesn't do only pulps. He does, you know, more expensive books and everything. But um, he told me more generally that, you know, they are 
in that world, they are actively kind of trying to keep keep it going to attract younger people. He's involved with the Antiquarian Book Fair mm. in New York. And um, from what I understood from him, that, that seems to be a big focus of theirs, is to sort of have a next generation and have that next generation not just be, you know, wealthy, older white guys. Um, yeah. And yeah, so... So I think that there's um, there's probably some recognition. I, I don't want to speak to this too much, but there's probably some recognition that um, these shifts in our culture have like um, maybe to some extent threatened the future of collecting. Because I, I think it's important to realize that like, um, you know, Gary at any time is selling thousands of paperbacks on eBay. And you know, he, he's not doing that as this scheme to get rich. It's, it's part of getting the books to the people who want them and keeping the whole ecosystem of books and book collectors going. And I think a lot of people feel this way. So I would say that um, on the one hand, yes, there is that recognition, but I think because they recognize it, they are making efforts to change it. The, uh, the one other thing I would point out that I think, um, and with John, he touches on this. It's not really the point of the piece exactly, but um, so one of the issues that's you know going to be increasingly cropping up, it seems, in the next few years in this sort of uh, pulp collecting space, which, like, mind you, is not it's not really a high dollar thing, but a lot of the golden age of comics, the people who would go on to write those comics initially wrote pulps and mm. did pulp covers and pulp illustrations. And so when you look at the comic book collecting market, that has increasingly uh, sort of been the, been the realm of people looking at them more as investments. And so uh, in order to do that, you need to have them graded, which assesses their quality you know do they have rips do they have smudges things like that and then they seal them away in hard plastic and that's it they as a financial asset you would never want to open that again um and that is sort of it in my from from what i gleaned from people that seemed to be the bigger threat um that they saw was that as these comic book collectors move into the realm of pulps those will get slabbed and basically, you know, put in a, maybe like a tax-free warehouse <laughs> by an airport, you know? In a and, fireproof safe, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the tragedies of that is that um, a lot of those texts haven't been digitized. Yeah. So, um, you know, you could kind of, the, you would just lose, lose this stuff. Um, and it'll be increasingly... Um, hard to afford but there there are some people um who they do you can find them online they buy the slab ones and then make videos of them ripping the slabs off and so there's oh. there's like a bit yeah there's a bit of a bit of a war going on yeah I no i know i mean it does it see it does seem to like really change i mean I, you know, I grew up reading comic books. I worked at a comic book store and it is like this really pernicious thing where it's like it changes 
changes what kind of stories are being told. It changes how people approach it. And again, it like it ceases to be what it is. The object is. It's just a speculative asset. It's like you know, um, there was that episode of John Wilson where he talks about the people who get the painting the copy of the famous painting that they've purchased and that's that's exactly what this <laughs> is except for you're like you know this is a story that someone perhaps on some sort of amazing mid-40s uh uh amphetamine wrote and, <laughs> and put a lot of effort put a lot of effort into it and like it's just gone and these these things are meant to be read these things are meant to be touched you know they're they're real things and it's such a tragedy yeah i think i think that there is that kind of inherent tension in the collecting world for this stuff because it is like the you know something where these are meant to be read they're meant to be consumed they're meant to be enjoyed but then at the same time they're not made to they're not built to last and yeah. so people do want to preserve them and protect them but if that necessarily means not reading them then what does it mean to protect it yeah. um yeah, I mean, because, you know, Lucille, who's Lucille Kelly, who's Gary's wife, you know, she, she talks about sort of the ephemeral nature of collecting, that it's kind of about the chase, you know, people who like dating, you know, I like the chase, don't like being in a relationship, that sort of thing. This, 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 there seems, there are, there are lots of parallels between lots of other things in this. I don't want to get into it. But, you know, Gary's wife, Lucille, describes collecting as a disease. I mean, do you do you agree with that? Do you think that's given what you've seen? <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't, I think she's having fun saying that. Mm. Um, it, it's certainly, it's an obsession. I don't know. I don't know that she really means so negatively that it's a disease. She's just a very you know, funny person. Um, yes. There's a lot of <laughs> South Brooklyn in this that is very moving to see. Yeah. So I, yeah, I did. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see, someone who has, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of books, more than they could ever read, you know, there's something interesting to be like, what's going on here? Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I doubt she would deep down feel actually that negative about it because I mean, it is, it's something they do together all the time and they, you know, it's part of the core of their love with each other. Yeah. Well, some diseases are fun, like toxoplasmosis that makes you love <laughs> kitty cats. Uh, it's like, yeah, use me. I don't care. Uh, you're a little soft kitty. I want to touch your... Can hand. that be cured? I don't think so. And you know what? If there was a cure, I wouldn't want it. Mm. I'd say, no, thanks, Doc. <laughs> Maybe you have it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I have it. <laughs> Anything my cats do is great. <laughs> um, so, you know, going back to the... the 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 fact that these are actual stories you know you cite this very funny but also very kind of uh true um um piece of writing by ed doherty that's called any six thousand word detective yarn which is instructions for writing you know like pulp writing in general um and doherty might have been a screenwriter or a u.s customs agent into in addition to like churning out these pulps um and what was interesting to me about his instructions is that, you know, it, it only slightly departs from the tenets of the 3X, 3X structure dictum by advising that, quote, near the end of the first 1500 words, there is a complete surprise twist and the plot development 
suspense. And then, and then he gets in, then, then the story becomes about the hero kind of becoming heroic and struggling and so on. I mean, what do you, what do you make of that formula and kind of like delaying rather than starting off with, you know, a choice? Cause 1500 words, again, it's like, obviously we're, we work in a magazine. We're always thinking in terms of word count, but this, it, it's a, uh, it's an interesting, it's a very specific number, and it's a very interesting delay. Well, I would guess probably a couple of things. First, that that is um, a product of a different time when people were more willing to read 1,500 words before you get a twist. You know, second, it is just the case, at least according to a few people I talked to, that a lot of these pulps just aren't very good. Like oh, yeah. the original magazines. Um, they weren't meant to be good. <laughs> right, right, yeah. That, um, and I also think that that, uh, as he laid that out, that's just a good formula because they had to write these quickly. I mean, there, was, you know, there wasn't money in spending a year on one of these. Um, and so I think that probably is just a formula that at that time period worked. Um, I, it occurs to me I should just add... So that uh, if any pulp collectors are listening, they don't get mad at me. <laughs> that um, so pulps really technically just mean the pulp magazines that have all the different stories. But when the paperback books, um, when they're sold on eBay, they describe them as pulp as well, probably just for keyword searches and stuff like that. But so even though you know, we're kind of using that interchangeably, just for the record. Um, <laughs> Do not write in. <laughs> uh, I mean, the rapidity of this, like everyone, especially Harper's Magazine, wants to shit on the internet and sort of be like, you know, the rapidity of culture now, but like, this is such a clear precursor to that. And then, you know, there's also this so much is serialized now. Like we're living in kind of like, you know, we have all sorts of things, on TV shows on stream and, and on streaming and franchise films and all this stuff. I mean, do you see any parallels between where we are now and sort of where pulps, uh, whether they were printed in a magazine or in a book, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of where we are now in, in culture? I'm not sure. I don't think I have the... Um zoomed out perspective one would need to really take a stab at that but um yeah in general i think that a notable thing about a lot of the uh kind of pulpy era stuff is that even though it might be 1500 words till you get to a twist or something your those words are you know, that's not going to be a character thinking or contemplating a situation for 1500 words. That's going to be action. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just designed to be action. So it's the on a line by line basis, it's meant to just carry you through from like beginning of line to end of line, beginning of paragraph to end of paragraph. So it's all structured to just keep moving. Mm -hmm. And the characters usually go a lot of places. They um, have a lot of conversations. They so um yeah so in general i i would say that it is uh it is definitely rooted in that like 
mode that maybe we would recognize now of got to keep your attention, got to constantly compete for it, fight for it. Um, but uh, how much it's rooted, I don't, I don't know. I, I would say maybe the most direct connection it, it has is that these comic, these pulp writers became the comic book writers and those comic books became those comic book movies and those comic book movies are constantly competing for your attention, yes. not only during each movie, but with one another. Um, mm. And so, yeah, there, there's something, I think at least to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think media to some extent, um, when it's designed to be profitable, is always just competing for attention. Yeah, it's, it's the same old. We're, we're not past Nickelodeons. <laughs> TikTok is just a Nickelodeon. Get over it, people. Um, and, you know, pulp is perhaps most closely associated with the detective genre. But there, are, there were many different types of pulps, you know, inclu including those that deal with, like, Greek or other ancient mythologies, which, is, which was interesting to hear about. So what was, what was the appeal there? Well, I think... Um... I think it's probably similar to, in some sense, like the sci-fi appeal where you just, you kind of have um, this entire historically established universe that you can play in and... Um, free IP. Yeah, free IP. <laughs> and so much is recycled in pulps in general. So many themes, so you know, the characters repeat, they're used differently in different ones that... I think the um, there there is just a pleasure people have in looking at these Greek stories or, or these Roman stories and then reinterpreting them, rewriting them, getting to play in that world. I think that is just also part of the story for story's sake, loving culture that they have. There's a point where Gary says, quote, these are sci-fi pulps about years of the future that never came to pass. End quote. While Chris of the old bookshop in Morristown, New Jersey, paraphrases L.P. Hartley's sentiment, the past was a different country. So there's this relation, the relationship to time, you know, personal, collective, historical, you know, historical as in historical text, as we under, as it is taught, let's say, kind of runs throughout this piece, as well as this hobby, this hobby of collecting these. So, so did you find your own relationship to how you thought of time kind of changed as you were writing it? I did really like the idea, that sentiment of Gary's, that um, back when they were writing those, to some degree when you're a kid reading it, you might really have thought like, oh, in 50 years, like we'll be in flying cars on Mars. And, the, and there's an amazing, I guess, idea to that, like possibility, especially in your childhood um, and that there's maybe when you look at them now, it, there is a sort of sadness in a way that it just didn't work out that way. Like yeah. um, it maybe some version of some of these things could have happened, but they just didn't. And um, relatedly uh, for a story I did years ago about uh, moon rocks on the black market, I talked to uh, Gene Cernan, who was the last astronaut to walk on the moon, I believe. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, we have this 
sort of sort of maybe cynical but certainly to some extent true interpretation of that Apollo time period as um, this was just a Cold War like military project. And he said it was at first, but then it changed. Mm -hmm. And um, there really was this just sense of what could be possible. And um, he told me um, if he had known they wouldn't go back to the moon, that that would be the end of that program. Uh, he never would have gotten back on the craft. And <laughs> I, I thought about that um, a lot when thinking about the sci-fi stuff in particular, because, um, you know, I think, I think people, when those things were written, really, you know, they didn't know that um, this would all just kind of change directions and that that projected future, however fantastical it seems, wasn't going to be how it, how it would work out and it um it was something that was captivating to me because i think um this is just my own uh really interpretation but i think there is a sense when people are collecting something from their childhood that um there is a nostalgia not even just for like a moon base or a mars base for that being possible, but just for that time period of mm -hmm. life. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe the, this is a way to, um, at least a little bit be able to live back in that period. And yeah. And I think that like, um, cause sci-fi, I mean, it really does, it, it has such its own vast, genre that has kind of spun out of all of this and um yeah i you know like uh the the sci-fi books i mentioned there the doomerest of terror books i mean it it is a guy basically traveling the universe trying to get back to the planet of his childhood only to be disappointed and so i think that 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 theme lives at least in the spirit of a lot of um the interests that these people have in these books and in these pulps. Yeah. Nostalgia is a funny thing. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it does seem in some ways kind of sad um, because as Lucille kind of talks about at the end that you're, um, you know, what you, you collect tens of thousands of books and they're all these little stories and, you know, when you buy them and when you leaf through them in the store, right, during the hunt, yes. um, it's it probably gives you some of that feeling of being a child and in, in more than just remembering it, but actually remembering a time when um, all was before you and, you know, anything could happen. Um, but then, you know, if you're, if you're in your 80s, you've got, you know, storage lockers full of the, or not lockers, what uh, storage units full of these books. What do you do with it? And like, what happens to it when you're gone and all of this stuff? So I, I think as it accumulates and as you grow older, it's, it also kind of becomes a library of all of these times you've sought a certain uh, 
connection to your childhood, which is a little, I don't know, bittersweet. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. And like, um, there's also something, and I don't mean this in a derogative way, but like there is something like the childlike pleasure of getting a new thing, except for you yeah. have the autonomy to do it for yourself and being like, I'm fascinated by this thing. I've never seen it before and I want it and I'm going to get it and like, and it'll be mine. Um, and you know, even if, even if I forget about it, as long right. as I, it, it's like, again, that, that beauty of like the novelty of, of searching for these things and finding them and then putting them, putting them wherever. I mean, you know, so, I mean, I think, you know, they, there's there's this the, the same what we sort of keep coming back to is that there's this these objects carry a deeper meaning even if they've been destroyed or lost so i guess how how you know how how do you you know it's sort of what you'd seen because lucille and gary lost a bunch of stuff in like hurricane sandy so how how did you see them kind of like deal with that um it it would be hard for me to say because they're um very sarcastic they're, yeah they're they're very funny they they um they have a great spirit um just in a great kind of view of life and stuff to where i think lucille as she says like kind of took from it that you know what is what was the point of accumulating all of this um I think that Gary, he seemed more, to me at least, he seemed more um, sympathetic to the idea of you are this caretaker of this stuff and you are to protect it, which makes sense that he would for decades run this magazine about that stuff. Because that, you know, he, he, he in addition to writing uh, all different kinds of stories, he has a ton of books. Um, he he also publishes guides for collectors, right? And, and so he, um, he really has, uh, I think, a sense that, that he has some obligation to this stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, they're, they're, we're just, uh, they really do just have like a, a great way of seeing things um, that I think it doesn't lend itself necessarily to them um, going on and on about how they felt about Sandy. But I, yeah, um, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure it was horrifying. Yeah. 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 No, it was bad for a lot of people. Um, but I want to, I want to talk a little bit about what one of your favorite forms, which is the shaggy dog. <laughs> and I think there, you know, I was, it, cause this, this story, I, w I was curious how you kind of structured this story. Cause it is, it is very sprawling there are a lot of false, you know, false leads, you, you, you know, and, and, but it really, it really feels like this, it, you know, it really feels like this wonderful experience of having shared this time with these people and, you know, sort of gotten to know them. Um, so I guess, how did you approach, you know, going from like encountering them to, to sort of taking notes to, to shaping the narrative? Well, um, I mean, it really, it, it was, felt like one of those really rare things where um, it was just unfolding in a way um, that lent itself to using the like Doherty's breaking it up into four things and following his rough guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, I would say as it progressed, 
um, there there was more care to the idea of like uh, I want to find these things out in a certain order type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, as time progressed, I think and that's true with any story to some extent maybe if you if you're taking notes and you know you're writing it um yeah i i would also say though that i did i never really knew um where where it was headed um because i loved the idea of this quest of looking for this lost pulp that that had like magical powers but <laughs> It's um, literally the golden fleece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's stuff like that where you're just like, this is, Come this on. is great. I mean, when I first went to um, to Gary and Lucille's, I, I hadn't heard of the golden fleece yet. Um, and so it really like, uh, it only started to become this thing once uh, once I realized this book was missing. Um, but... That said, I I was aware the book was kind of uh, as time went on, searching for it became more of a MacGuffin sort of where mm-hmm. um, I wanted the point to be Gary and Lucille and their relationship, and because um, they really I, they're just a great couple to be around. They're they really just genuinely enjoy each other. And um, I just thought that was striking. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's very fun. They they have, uh, they had careers in the post office, which, you know, turns out to be a pretty wild place. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, the poisonings, the shootings. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy um blackmail yeah all of it (sighs) yeah and so so it it, as it um as it progressed it it, i was more and more aware that it was going to be about them and that i was just kind of going to keep doing it until i got to what felt to me um like some sort of resolution about the story of them and then uh and it when it arrived it uh i was i was like yeah i think you know (laughs) the the quest is over yeah well i guess is there anything from the piece that didn't make it in uh that you 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 know you feel is worth you know or you you regret or you know you feel like is worth relating now oh i there's just so much dialogue with Gary and Lucille <laughs> that, um, yeah, the, I, I wish so much more of it could have gone in. But when the story, you know, it's not, uh, it's not really about anything. And so by the time you're almost at like 10,000 words, you, <laughs> you can only ask so much, I think. But, um, yeah, there there were so many funny ones. One that uh, um, stuck out in my head is one time after we were leaving, um, after we were leaving a restaurant, um, we were walking through the parking lot, and uh, Gary was talking. He was telling me about how he had uh, produced this one pulp guide. Um, I can't remember offhand what 
country it was for, but um, you know, to do it, he he had printed it, I think, in color, and he was very pleased with it. And to do it, he he had purchased all of these books so that he had put them in this guide. Um, and, you know, they weren't in English. He wasn't reading them or anything. Um, mm. But, or, well, maybe some of them were. I, I'm actually not sure on that. But anyway, um, the you, you could detect, as he was telling me this, that there was kind of a long-standing debate over how necessary it was for Gary to buy all of the books when he makes a guide. Uh. And... Um, Lucille is like, Gary, you didn't you didn't have to buy all these books. And he's like, of course you did. You have to be able to hold, you have to be able to look inside. You have to be able to see the dates. And, so, and he's going through this thing and he just gets to the end. He's like, you just, you know, um, you, you've got to, you've got to have these. You've got, you've got to have them or you, you can't make a collector's guide. And she just looks at him and she goes, my God, uh, like, good thing you weren't writing about tropical diseases. <laughs> 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 and I, and it was, yeah and there's so many things like that where um the the other thing the other thing that i feel uh oh, well two things actually one is um i'm hoping to do something focusing entirely on the post office and their adventures in the post office. So there, there's much more to that, but um, that just felt like it was too separate of a thread. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know what it is. They, they attract, I guess, like mystical uh, media objects um, and they're more, more appear in their post office working. But the last thing on that I would say is that the whole Sherlock Holmes thing is oh my God. It, like <laughs> it's wild. And I like that. I could just the only, vitriol. yeah, I, I could only get so much of that in there because um, it, it is just the difficulty with it actually was that anytime you try to mention just a little bit of this, uh, this sort of power of Sherlock Holmes in the pulp collecting world, there is so much you have to start covering. Like, um, like I talked to, uh, I talked to someone at the Baker Street Irregulars Society, which is this group of very devoted Sherlock Holmes fans who, you know, often um, will say that they'll have just one uh, book that they're devoted to or one story of Sherlock Holmes. And so you'll, um, apparently, according to others, the, you know, you would go to these conventions and you might meet someone and they're just like, oh, I don't know about the Red-Headed League. I'm a Houndian. Hound of the Baskervilles. That's my thing. And, um, and so all of that, I, you know, there's there's so much to that. And I, I love that because they're playing this thing called the great game, which is you, you sort of I'm not sure that's the thing. I'm not sure if the word pretend is correct here. <laughs> I really am not sure. I would I would agree with that. Um, I, <laughs> well, because you did that. You had that readings item about like Enola, Enola Holmes. 
Yeah. That was crazy. I'll put I'll put a link to that in the description of this podcast, but like that thing, I was just like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean, uh, so so the the thing they do is they're basically treating his they're treating Sherlock as a historical character um and they're trying to understand him and his motives in the context of their time, in the context of the society um, in London. And it, it goes to, it just goes to really odd places. Like one of the, I think most uh, controversial links that a lot of the Baker Street Irregulars are not, I think, a fan of, and I hope I'm not, um, portraying this incorrectly, but is this sort of, well, because there is this interesting overlap time-wise with Jack the Ripper, and um, I think people who play the great game, they would ask, like, why does Sherlock never address Jack the Ripper. Why? Why isn't he solving this? And he's not a real person. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> well, <laughs> but no. Continue. Continue. That's um, just my opinion. I haven't. I'm yeah. not a houndian. No. Exa- exactly. Exactly. So what do I know? Um. But the this leads to a lot of different theories. Um, the very controversial one is that Holmes is Jack the Ripper, okay. and I think people do not like his name being sullied in such a way. Um, But all of that stuff I just think is infinitely fascinating. And um, one of the things that I think, you know, it's funny. It's definitely kind of funny that there's all of these doctors and lawyers who um, play this, but it's also kind of endearing in the same way that the um the collecting of these old pulps is endearing that there's a quality of like i'm not going to let go of my imagination yes exactly like i still this this always it always has been fun to think like this and it always will be fun to think like this and um yeah so i i think that they're uh they're really interesting in that way because the Holmes is also, I really, I mean, if you talk to any of the pulp collectors I've met, even though Sherlock Holmes is not pulp, it is like the godfather. Yeah. That it, it is so, it comes up everywhere. When you ask people like, oh, what, what was your first thing that got you down? And they're like, oh, actually it was reading so-and-so Sherlock Holmes story um so it's so foundational that um that sort of preservation of imagination that the um most hardcore devotees have uh really does feel like it it is related to um the the love of these old fantasies and old sci-fi books and old detective stories that someone like Gary or John would have absolutely no I think I think a lot of people would be a lot happier if that was more encouraged you know like yeah 
like really it's just like because again it's like i'm very interested in conspiracy theories and what's your favorite oh man um the one i think is real or one i think is fake um or or i don't know uh because i i really like um i really like uh castro killed jfk but then i also really like the 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 cia was just trying to fuck with him and then oswald accidentally made the shot kind of like a libra sort of thing <laughs> so so you're really rooted in the mid-20th no, century no no conspiracy. no no i mean the, the jfk the jfk stuff doesn't actually interest interest me that much but i mean like uh epstein big very interested in that uh did not kill himself i don't care i'm not gonna bleep myself out saying that <laughs> Um, I think, I mean, uh, but I, I am I, in terms of like, sort of like following these things. I mean, I've been, you know, I followed QAnon from sort of the start. I don't believe in QAnon, uh, but <laughs> I shouldn't make that clear. But I think, and, and like, you know, flat earthers and that sort of stuff. And there are no trees on hollow earth and like all this, all this stuff. And like those people, there's this misconception that those people are dumb. That's like, these people aren't dumb. They aren't crazy. They just don't. Like they're alien, you know. I mean, obviously, this is a socialist boring, but like they're they're just kind of alienated from their lives. Like their lives, then you know, they're they're not engaged in their jobs. They don't have an outlet. They're smart, and so they they go to these things. They get sucked into these things, and sometimes it goes really fucking wrong, and it's sad. And it's just like I don't know if you were, you know, if if more people had, I don't know more people were fucking around in the great game like would we would we have comet ping pong pizza shooting no i would venture that's a that's a bold statement but i'm gonna say it <laughs> i mean i really because again it's just like people i mean it's not to say that there aren't people who aren't you know maybe a little iffy or you know exploiting people's beliefs and they know that this is all that they're doing is kind of fucked up but like you know it, it's rooted in creativity it's a form of vernacular creativity, and and if if you know if if that wasn't so marginalized, and and sometimes I feel like it is like kind of frowned upon as like kind of fruity almost, which is weird, but it's it's true. Um, if that was more encouraged, if if adults had a better outlet for that, then I don't know. I don't think we'd be in the world would be a little bit better. We'd still have climate change, but <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it. It definitely feels true that um, something like The Great Game is a really healthy, positive way to sort of flex your imaginative muscle. Exactly. Um, and people don't realize they have to flex. Yeah. Which is, that's the problem. Like, and then it's just, you know, it goes off, it goes right. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> I feel like I hijacked that. <laughs> like Epstein. No. Um. Anyway. Uh. I guess. So. What's What's next? What's Are you working on anything now? Um. I mean, I think yeah. I'm trying to see where the post office stuff will go. Um. But it's, you know, a lot of these, you, um, sometimes these types of stories just don't go anywhere, you know? You've got to have a missing golden fleece to go find. Yes. And sometimes it just doesn't materialize. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
this materialized and i'm very glad it did um do you want to plug your book um well since that was a harper story it was a harper story um sure yeah in uh 2025 so please just remember this for uh the next what 15 16 months yeah, um, put a, do a google calendar reminder <laughs> the uh yeah i'm publishing an account of uh eight years i spent uh visiting a community of people who live on boats um in uh the san francisco bay area this place Richardson Bay which is off the coast of Sausalito and um, there's certainly all different types of people who are out there but um, a lot of them are uh, you know struggling with issues of poverty and would perhaps otherwise be homeless and then you have Sausalito which is one of the uh, wealthier places in the country um, and so the book is sort of looking at um, the interactions over the years they have uh, as the politics change um, in Sausalito and nationally and around issues like uh, being unhoused, um, addiction, these sorts of things. Um, and uh, yeah, that that is really a story that uh, I did not intend to do for eight years, but um, that is one where it just the actual story really did uh, did just run away. Um, it, uh, you, you always had a tension between the town and, um, the anchorage where all these people live and have lived. There's been a community there for almost a hundred years. So, um, it had a very historic, uh, set of traditions and values and, um, just ways of life. Um, but yeah, about, uh, halfway through, it went from kind of like a low-key uh, sort of war, maybe to war is not really the right word because they can't really fight back. But it, it went from being kind of like a low-key conflict where, um, you know, when the political winds would kind of turn against them, uh, the town would try to, uh, you know, lessen their numbers, get rid of them one way or the other. Um, but about you know, halfway through kind of, or a little more but with the arrival of COVID, everything changes and there's just a really strong push to evict them all from the water. And that ends up going just horribly wrong for everybody. Uh, anyway, that's a long plug, yeah. uh, but. No, no, but it, it, it's a story that, you know, just like this, again, it, it maybe doesn't seem to have like a very clear sort of, you know, Beginning, middle, end. What is what is the concern? It's it's just sort of about people, yeah. about America, and like these very uniquely American situations that we find ourselves in that has have been created for us and that we create for ourselves and then have done to us. You know, so it's yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that 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 with with both of these and certainly with the book is, I'm not a scholar of like homelessness or poverty or any. I like. So I, I'm not really approaching it um, trying to pretend I know everything uh, there is to know about that uh, history, but what the way I'm really trying to approach it is just create this sort of um, intimate 
portrait of this community as maybe a way um, for people to, you know, again, they're also, they're really funny. They tell jokes all the time. There's a lot of like graveyard humor in that, in that culture. And um, I think it, it hopefully will be something that when people read it, it makes them think um, about, you know, what we, what we destroy when we say rip apart a tent city um, yeah. that, um, you know, often I think it's like 70% of uh, something like that of um, people who are unhoused, it, that is their community before yeah. they were unhoused. And so um, they don't have, there's, they don't have anywhere to go. That's where any ties they have are. And so when we rip apart these communities and scatter them, uh, to the wind, you know, we're destroying a lot more than just uh, maybe a tent city or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and I think it's it's similar maybe with like um, approaching writing this Golden Fleece story, where um, you know, again, the Golden Fleece. I mean, it's it's a MacGuffin, but yes. the uh, and so it really is just um, you know supposed to be kind of and i hope does this to some extent um just sort of like a very close-up window into a um relationship that really worked out uh and yeah yeah, yeah. oh and again another thing in addition to flexing a creative muscle i think america also needs to work on its community muscle very badly yeah yeah, I, I think um, with that uh, story um, in Sausalito that the book is about, uh, it, it really is surprising. A, a lot of it is set um, when I'm trying to show the policy parts um, or kind of the town's perspective. Um, a lot of that comes from uh, city council meetings, which are very well attended. Um, and by both by both the anchor outs who live on the boats on the water and by the sort of referred to as the hill people who live in Sausalito um, and yeah I mean with some of them you just you just get a real uh, a real sense that um, there there is something kind of fractured about the community the appreciation for the greater community and like, um, you know, on some level it's like, my God, who cares if a handful of people aren't paying city tax? Like, yeah, just, like, yeah, literally you know, like any, <laughs> you know, I, um, I told this years ago to a friend of mine who, um, I think he was getting his like PhD in political science. And he said that, um, it's strange how people uh, in in these often wealthy communities will um, hone in on things like that and become very entrenched in this, you know, that or similar types of gripes. Um, and he was saying how, you know, it, it's pretty widely accepted that like any community of a sufficient size is going to have people who can't, you know, financially participate fully and that if you have a healthy community 
it should allow for that exactly. and that space should exist and that is part of the flexibility that a healthy community has but um in this case it's not oh well, <laughs> well whatever <laughs> no i mean anyway that maybe this could be cut to well that. no no you just so so in this case well so in this case i think what you what you end up seeing in the book is that um Right. Like initially at the start, California has passed this law that says um, essentially it doesn't mean that a town has to build uh, homeless shelters necessarily, but it means it has to it has to adjust its zoning so that emergency shelters can be built, that it's possible. Um, it's almost doing something. Right. Well, <laughs> and also yeah. not that there's any problems with shelters at all. No, those are all great. You definitely don't have to throw out every worldly possession you own to enter a shelter oh yeah there, i mean there's but in, in this context the there's just a lot of people who don't want it built to the point where even the you know even the uh council members they're um they're the reassuring the public like look we're not saying we're gonna build this Ugh. and uh there's one anchor out who would just go up there and he would be like why are we even talking you will never do this he's like you know, we we are the solution. Like, just like, you know, don't, like, we have a solution. The Anchorats, they're the solution. And he's even saying, like, when we have people coming through who don't have homes, we often house them on our boats. Like, and so this solution, right, it, it kind of exists right in front of them, but they're, for whatever reason, they, they don't want it. And- um, It's not fair. I pay my taxes. And it's like, do, do you actually really, rich person? Are you actually paying it, your taxes? Yeah, and, and to be fair, a lot of the residents are, to varying degrees, very supportive and sympathetic to the anchor outs. It's just a, a lot aren't, too. Um, yeah. Or enough aren't that, uh, you know, pretty pretty sad stuff happens. Like the So, the, so basically, I mean, obviously, if they... Um, don't even want to rezone things to make a shelter possible. No shelter ever gets built. Right. And that might not seem like a big deal uh, because you have the anchorage. Um, and so so for a while there there's a maybe like an uneasy balance. Um, but then uh, when COVID hits and then they it kind of coincides not coincidentally with um the various governing bodies it's all kind of complicated with that um have sort of a almost questionable amount of authority over this uh anchorage and particularly the part of it that is in federal waters um but they just really push 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 to to get rid of them and they you know to a large extent oh they do um but they don't get rid of the people. The people just move into the park on land, but then they don't want them in the park. Uh, so they move them to this other park that's like out of out of sight. Um, and the conditions are way worse. And at one point, um, sewage is bubbling up from mm. something. It's it, it, there was there's some debate. I you know 
I'll just say allegedly um, because I don't want to miscategorize anything. But that results in them then moving them to these uh, tennis courts and tennis courts yeah yeah because they needed this and, is just like getting this is like levels of like i like starting off on abandoned rich person boats and then going to a park and then a different park and then a tennis court like this is just like yeah. I, this is like circles of hell yeah. like ir- ironic circles of hell and and it, it it's so sad because like the each step it's just worse right yeah. i mean um you're by the time you're in a tennis court you you are just fenced in um and yeah and and i i guess i i bring that uh arc up because i think that is um that is what happens when you don't have this flexibility in a community. You, you rigidly, you, you don't want shelters. You don't want these anchorettes. And you think to yourself, like, we can just get rid of them and they'll go somewhere else and it won't be. And that's just not really how it works. And we, we kind of know that that's not how it works if we um, zoom out of some of these communities and situations in the past. We know that it doesn't really work, but there's just such an impulse to try to behave that way. And you know, by the end, um, neither, neither side was, I don't know if you want to call them sides, but like neither the anchor outs nor the residents by and large were like, this went well, you know, it, it was just, uh, where there was a complex situation, it just turned it into a tragic and avoidable one. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but well, I always like to end on a positive note. But I, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, let's just say a better world is possible. Don't, don't um. Just look to the sci-fi of the past. Look to the sci-fi <laughs> of the past, and you will be inspired and see that a utopia. We can build a utopia together. Uh, Hillary Clinton does not eat adrenochrome. <laughs> uh, be is... nice to your neighbors, <laughs> regardless of their housing status. Uh, and uh, don't slab shit. That sucks. Don't be an asshole. Don't, don't, treat, <laughs> don't treat art like a fucking speculative object. Yeah, amen. Don't buy, don't buy this podcast. <laughs> Luca out! <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 